This morning's passage is uh, taken from Philippians chapter 2. So if you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to it. If not, you can follow along in the screens or uh, in your bulletins. Uh, I want you to think for a minute about the moments of life that often come our way. Uh, We have big moments in life. uh, We have little moments in life. But but often when those big moments in life, we recognize that uh, nothing ever is going to be the same after that thing happens. Uh, I can remember uh, the first time holding uh, a child of my own uh, after the birth and realizing that that my life was really never going to be the same, that uh, I was going to have to work out the implications of being being a father for the rest of my life and through the different stages of life. And in many ways, the gospel's like that. When we experience the gospel of Jesus Christ, it transforms us. And so the rest of our lives become living out the implications of that gospel. And that's really what our passage uh, is about this morning. So I'm going to be reading now from Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12 and finishing through the end of the chapter uh, at verse 30. This is God's word. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence... Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world." holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for for, for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is God's word. Father, be with us as we reflect and think upon your word about the nature of the gospel and the implications that it has for the way we live our lives. Help us to understand uh, what you want us to hear this morning. Open uh, the ears of our heart 
uh, so that we can hear your voice this morning because we desperately need to hear it. So may your spirit visit us this morning as we reflect on your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. This morning as we look at this really long passage and uh, we're, we're not going to get to all the implications of it. And so what I want to do is I want to simplify it and look at one principle, one application and a couple of examples that Paul gives us of the principle that he establishes uh, in this passage. So first let's look at the principle and the principle is uh, established for us in verse 12 where it says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So what I want to do is focus on Paul's sometimes controversial words here, and, and, uh, and many people have talked about it uh, through centuries. What does Paul mean when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For years, uh, folks have really struggled with this passage, uh, and they've struggled with it for a lot of different reasons. Uh, some have looked at this and thought, well, doesn't this really contradict uh, what Paul says in all of his other letters? If salvation, that Paul talks a lot about, if salvation is a gift of God's free grace, then why does Paul seem to suggest that we have to work when it comes to our salvation or our rescue? Is he in some ways contradicting himself and, and things that he wrote in other letters? Well, I don't think so because if you dig a little deeper, I think you get a sense of what Paul is really talking about here. And I think there's a couple things that help us to realize that he isn't really contradicting himself. He's just actually highlighting a different aspect of the gospel. Because when Paul uses that word salvation, he is using it in a fuller sense than what we often realize at face value. Because when Paul talks about salvation, he talks about the full work of God in our lives, really from start into eternity and our eternity together with him. And so it includes a lot of different things. It includes our justification, which is a theological term that means our legally being declared right before God in the divine courtroom. So that word salvation includes justification, but it also includes the idea of sanctification. And that's another theological word uh, that means the ongoing work of God in our lives where he shapes us more and more into his image and more and more into his will. So salvation includes justification. It includes this idea of sanctification, but it also includes the idea of glorification. That at one point, either our lives will pass away or God will come in glory and we will all stand in God's presence, perfect in glory, worshiping him for all of eternity. So when Paul uses that word salvation, he means all of those things. You see, where, where we kind of get confused is we often equate salvation with justification as if they are one thing. But really our justification, our being made right before God, is just a piece it is just a part of the fuller work of salvation 
that God works in our lives. Uh, years ago, I read an article uh, by a theologian named Michael Horton. And, and the article was entitled this, and I love the title. It was, What Happens When Your Testimony is Boring? Okay? And, uh, and when he wrote this, it was really popular in evangelicalism uh, for everybody to kind of walk around and share their testimony with one another. Maybe if you've been in Christian circles long enough, you know about this. And so, so everybody would go around and tell their story about how they came to faith. And some people would have great stories. And other people would have less great stories. So he wrote in the, the article uh, about people trying to embellish their own testimony, their own story about how they came uh, uh, to faith or sensationalize it and create some time of willful rebellion at the age of five where they willfully walked away from Jesus and God had to miraculously come and save them. So it's a great article and he, he talks a lot about it. But one of the things that's really helpful, at least for our discussion, is he talks about this idea of salvation and the fuller sense of it. And he says, when we think about salvation, we ought to think about salvation as we were saved at one point, we are being saved, and one day we will finally be saved. And what he means by that is that we have been saved. At one point, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, salvation has visited you, and you've been justified, you've been made right before God, and that is purely by God's sovereign grace and choice. But he says we are being saved, meaning we are being sanctified. We are growing more and more in our obedience to God. We are becoming more and more like him. And, and one of the things that he talks about is that is a combination of our work and God's grace. We're going to flesh this out in just a minute. And then he says, at one point, we will be saved. At one point, we will stand with God in glory, and we will be perfected for all of eternity. All of the the mess of sin that we deal with each and every day will all be gone, and we will all celebrate in perfection. So when Paul is really writing about salvation here, what I think he's writing about is the sanctification side of things. And the reason I think he says that is he writes, work out your salvation. He doesn't write, work for your salvation. He's saying, work out the implications of your salvation. And I think what he's reminding us is that there is a place or a role for work when it comes to living out the message of the gospel. Think about it this way. Our faith is to be defined as a a life-giving relationship with the God of the universe and the Savior of the world. It is a relationship from start to finish that is defined by God's grace in our lives and by his intense love for us. But as anyone who is married can tell you, sometimes relationships require a certain measure of hard work. Right? We all have relationships that start uh, with warm feelings and fuzzy feelings, but often those initial emotions cannot be the foundation of a relationship that lasts for a really long time. For a relationship to be healthy and to last for a long time, it requires what? It requires some work. But what anyone will tell you is that the more work you put into it, often the more joy that comes 
from that relationship. And so, friends, it really is no different with God. You might have seasons in your relationship with God where it feels powerful, it feels effortless, it feels all sorts of warm and fuzzy and wonderful. But faith, at its nature, is often more defined by work and by struggle. If you're like me, there are times where you really struggle in your relationship with God, or you struggle with sin that exists in your own heart and the battle with that sin that we deal with every day. You feel palpably the tension between the sin that exists in your life and the Spirit of God that is working against that sin in your life. If you're like me, you struggle with at times wanting to be autonomous and to call your own shots and yet at the same time living in a submissive way to the will of God. And so we know what it's like to struggle in the midst of faith. I think that's what faith is. It is struggling well in our relationship with God. It is putting in the work and the discipline to struggle well in our relationship with God. See, what I think that's happened in American Christianity, and I don't know how this has happened, but I think what's happened is we have a real tendency to become lazy when it comes to our faith. And that laziness is a reflection of and often reflected by the priorities of our lives. Because when you really think about it, if something has captured your heart, it's captured your desires as well. And if something's captured your heart and it's captured your desires, then you will joyfully discipline yourself and work hard towards that goal or towards that object. If we're only feeling half-hearted emotions, we find what? That it's hard to discipline ourselves. It's hard to work towards something. And so what happens is that many of us don't really engage the faith unless we're really feeling it. And what happens is, we, because we never really feel it, we never really refuse to uh, put the hard work in or to really engage in things. Here's how I think about it. Many of you know that I'm a runner and that, uh, that I coach runners. And from time to time, uh, my, my runners that I coach will come to me and they say, you know, coach, I just, I'm really having a hard time liking running. And you know what I'll say to them, which always shocks them, is, can I tell you a secret? You know what? I really don't like running either, right? And, and if you really ask anybody who is a runner, they will tell you that probably they don't like running either, right? But what do they do? They discipline themselves. They work hard in it. And as they sweat and as they struggle over mile after mile of running, what they discover is a love for it. But you have to engage it before the love for it develops. You don't always love the struggle and the discipline, but as you work, one thing you find is that your affections begin to change and it shapes your life in a different way. And so for many of us, our desires need to be rewired, but sometimes those desires will never get rewired until we are willing to work at it. And so make no mistake, the life of faith is one of hard work and discipline and struggle. Really, Paul talks about this throughout all of his letters. 
But it is the hard work of disciplining and struggling in such a way that allows God to really rewire our hearts. It becomes a joyful struggle. And so, so that's what I think what Paul's really getting at here. But what, what do you make of the phrase, with fear and trembling? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I, I thought we weren't supposed to be afraid of God anymore. After all, the, the divine judgment has been erased in the message of the gospel washed away by God's grace. And that is absolutely true. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, God no longer becomes our judge. We've been declared right in our relationship with him, so we we no longer need to fear his judgment, the judgment that you and I deserve. It's been taken away. It's been washed away. But here's what happens. The judge becomes your father. The judge becomes your father. And like any good father, there are times where he needs to discipline and work on our lives. All of you know that I have uh, four children, and I certainly hope uh, that they know that I love them and that nothing will ever take that love away. Uh, They will always be my children. But it's also my job as their father to discipline them. And there have been times where they have stepped out of line and they have to come before their mother and their father. And what do they do? They come before their mother and father with a certain measure of fear and trembling, right? Because they know in many ways they've stepped out of line. And so, friends, God may not be your judge anymore, but he is still the God of the universe and he is your father, And he lovingly disciplines his own. This is part of what it means for him to love you. Remember when we were kids and our parents, when they were disciplining us, what did they always say? I'm doing this because I love you. And we never understood that as kids. But now as a father, I understand that sometimes as a father, it means to love our kids, we need to discipline them. And it's no different with God. He is our father And he disciplines us. And so at times that means a measure of fear and trembling. And so what Paul says here is we need to work out our salvation, to work out the implications of the gospel in our lives to commit to the hard work and the struggle and the effort that comes from it. But it isn't just that our justification is about his grace. This is where we sometimes get it wrong, where we think that our justification is all about God's grace and our sanctification is all about our work and about our effort and about our discipline. And so what Paul does is immediately he reminds us that God is actually with us every step of the way. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you Work out your salvation, but it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So maybe for you, it is some sort of besetting sin or some misstep or mistake that you just can't seem to get past. It's something that no matter how hard you work and you're disciplined and discipline yourself, you just can't get past it. You just can't make it anywhere. Well, know that God is with you. That his grace and his power is with you every step of the way. He is committed to you. He won't give up on you. His power 
is at work in your life. And so, friends, if you are Christ's, you have been miraculously saved, and the rest of your life is applying that salvation to everything. It is the process of applying the gospel of Jesus Christ to every aspect of our lives. And so that is the principle that Paul is really establishing here. But then he moves on to to really show what the application of this looks like. And he gives us an example of what an application of living out the gospel is really all about. And he says it in verse 14. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. He uses two words here. The one is disputing, right? And what he's getting at is a problem that exists in the Philippian church. We're going to talk about this as we get later on in the book of Philippians. And he's talking about this, this spirit of dissension that sometimes creeps into the church. It's a contentious spirit that, that sometimes get, a church can become captured with, an attitude of heart that is always questioning or finding fault. It's, it's, a, it's a sense of critique rather than being sensitive to the Spirit of God. And we're going to talk about this later on in the book of, uh, of Philippians. But the other word is grumbling. And some translations uh, use the word complaining instead of grumbling. And this, we all know, is the, the sometimes silent, sometimes not so silent, uh, finding a fault with everyone or of everything. It is uh, the prideful arrogance that uh, believes that our perspective is always the right perspective, that our way is always the better way. It's the belief that if only you were in charge and calling the shots, or if people just listened to you, then things would always be better. And so what does Paul say here? He says, don't do any of it. He says, don't do any of it ever. If you read the book of Philippians, you'll know that Paul's really piling on. If you were with us last week, he said this, don't do anything at all out of selfishness or selfish ambition. And now you come this week and he says, don't do anything at all out of a grumbling or a complaining spirit. See, I think Paul uses this as an application to help best exemplify what he said before, this, this working out of our salvation. And so what I want you to do is to, to go on an experiment today. I want you to do this. Don't do anything today without any sort of grumbling or complaining. Don't complain about anything in your life. Don't complain about people in the church. Don't complain about your spouse. Don't grumble about your uh, uh, infuriating kids. Don't complain about your incompetent boss. Don't do any of that for an entire day and see how it goes. You see, I don't think Paul's speaking uh, against constructive discussion. I think Paul uh, does that all over the place. He affirms constructive discussion. But he also realizes that a lot of our discussion is destructive. It is trying to elevate our own opinion and tear down the uh, opinions and uh, the perspectives of other people. So I want to challenge you for the rest of the day, don't grumble or complain about anyone or anything and just see how it goes. 
because nothing will exemplify for you the struggling nature of what faith is all about. It will reveal to you, this sort of experiment will reveal to you what kind of hard work all of this requires, but maybe more than anything, it will exemplify for you the need for God's grace to be present with you in every step of this walk of faith. The last thing Paul does here is he gives a couple of examples. Uh, He talks about two people. He talks about Timothy. Uh, If you learn anything about Timothy, you'll know that he was really Paul's companion every step of the way in Paul's ministry. Um, He traveled with Paul. Uh, He ministered with Paul. He was imprisoned with Paul. And what you realize is that just like Paul, he had his eyes fixed on Jesus Christ in everything. Everything about his life was centered on his relationship with Christ. Then he talks about a man named Epaphroditus, which is a, a wonderful name. What we think is that Epaphroditus was a member of the Philippian church, who the Philippian church sent to care for Paul while Paul was in prison. And Epaphroditus was there with him, providing for him, caring for him. Uh, but while he was there, he took ill and almost died. Fortunately, the Lord restored him to health, and now Paul was sending Epaphroditus back to the Philippian church along with this letter uh, to encourage them and to be a part of his ministry. But just like Timothy, Epaphroditus, was, his life was centered on Christ. And so what Paul does is he gives two examples. Here's Timothy. Here's Epaphroditus. Here is two men who Christ has captured whose hearts have been captured by a relationship with Jesus Christ and that translated into lives that would do anything and go anywhere for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so what does Paul do here? He offers us a principle, he offers us an application, and he offers us a couple of examples on what it means to live out the implications of the gospel. Really, in many ways, I think all of this boils down to our priorities and what our priorities are. Eugene Peterson often said that American culture is very busy, and I would have to agree with him. I bet all of us feel that busyness all the time. But what Eugene Peterson said that's a little shocking is this, that really our busyness has to do with our own personal laziness. It doesn't feel like those two equate themselves, but what he says is this, that our, uh, our busyness is a symptom of our laziness, our unwillingness to prioritize our lives, to do the hard work about, of prioritizing our lives around the things that really matter. Stephen Lawson, I think, agrees with him when he wrote this. He says this, we would do well, like Paul, to bear in mind what it is that really matters into eternity and allow that to dictate our priorities and drive our emotions in this life. See, friends, one of the greatest uh, themes of the book of Philippians is this, is that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ to recognize in our Savior one who joyfully worked and struggled on your behalf and on mine in this work of redemption. He wasn't casual about his life. Instead, he was singularly focused on the work of God 
and the plan of redemption. And because he struggled, you and I can experience life. Because he worked and because he suffered, you and I can be forgiven. Know, friends, that he calls us to the very same path. Know that that when he calls us to following him, it means hard work. It means suffering. It means struggle. But what Philippians reminds us is this, that as we engage in the hard work, in the struggle, in the ups and downs of this life of faith, we find true joy. We find joy, not happiness based on circumstance. We find true joy in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And friends, that is good news. Let's pray.